This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Perhaps the most significant words of human anguish in the Bible come from the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. You remember he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was when he was taking on all of our sin and making the atonement for it through the shedding of his own blood on Calvary. Yet, even though we haven't been through that experience, who among us hasn't felt it sometime or another that God feels very far away? Even the psalmist laments in chapter 71. Oh God, do not be far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. So what is the appropriate response of a Christian when we do feel that God is far from us, though the Bible says he isn't? We're going to talk about it today with Jamie Rasmussen, senior pastor of Scottsdale Bible Church, and he is the author of the book we'll be discussing, When God Feels Far Away, Eight Ways to Navigate Divine Distance. Jamie, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for being here. No, thank you, Janet. It's my honor. Well, you have gone through this experience, haven't you, of feeling like God was far away. How have you experienced that struggle in your own life? Yeah, you know, I was not raised in a, in a Christian home. We hardly ever went to church, and I accepted Christ almost 40 years ago when I was 17 years old. And for the first, you know, probably four or five years, I experienced what, uh, you know, the C.S. Lewis calls your first fervor, where you're just on fire for the Lord and what have you. And then as those feelings started to wane, I went through seasons where I felt that God was farther away. I felt distant from him. And I'd do everything that I knew to do or was taught to do to draw close. And sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't. And I had a breakthrough experience in a counselor's office in my first pastorate where I just got honest about the fact that I feel far from God. Here I am pastoring a church and supposed to help people. And it was a moment in time where I decided two things, and I write about this in the book, and that's to get honest about times when I feel far from him and then pursue ways to draw closer to him, maybe even ways that other Christians don't talk often about. And that was a a real helpful thing for me. Well, I think everybody probably can relate to what you just said. We all have those periods of time where we'll we'll have a prayer time, for example, and think, oh, that was so wonderful. And I just felt such a fellowship with the Lord. And other times it feels like the heavens are brass. And, you know, I'm wondering what your thoughts on are on the issue of even evaluating that, because we know that the Bible says that God is omnipresent. He's near to the brokenhearted. He'll never leave or forsake us. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we know objectively that God is always with us. Are we interpreting how we feel in a wrong way when we're saying today he's near and yesterday he was far? I mean, we he's always near. So what what is going on with us that we have that impression? Well, I think it, it's it's complicated, right? I mean, it, it's 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 an, it's a, probably a, a combination of at times our faulty perceptions, maybe where we happen to be in our in our humanness and what have you, and our our fallenness blocks the presence of God or the felt presence of God. But I also think there are times where God is doing certain things in our lives. He might be chipping away at our character or allowing times where we feel far from him so that he might be doing something to deepen us and grow us in our walk with him. And the reason I say that is because there were plenty of times in the Psalms, 10 plus times, 
where the psalmist said, why are you hiding your face from me? And though theologians differ or argue about whether or not that was the psalmist's perceptions or whether God really was, I think there are times where we're doing our best to draw close to God. And again, whether it's our fallenness or whether God might be doing something unique in us, uh, we do feel far from him, and and that's very real. It, maybe a great example would be like with our, with our children, and there are times where I'm right with my children, I'm, I'm there with them, but there's a distance relationally from us, hmm. and it might be because they're rebelling or they're not seeing something, but even though I'm present with them, they feel not very close to me. And I think that I know that happens in our walk with the Lord. I think you're right about that. You also mentioned some of the regular activities that we're all taught to do as Christians, all of which are good things, which I have regular time in prayer, you know, quiet time or what have you, to read the Word of God, to fellowship with other Christians. And sometimes those regular activities don't give us the desired results, as you know. So what is the way out of that? Because clearly we have to obey what God's Word tells us to to do, uh, how should we approach that when that that input that we're getting is not helping us feel closer to the Lord? Yeah, I'm so glad you you mentioned that, uh, Janet. I I call that the equation, uh, and not that our walk with God is equational, but we're taught across denominational lines that if we study the Bible, pray regularly, fellowship, worship, serve, be generous, love all people, that we can expect a certain output with the Lord, you know, wisdom from Him, blessings, guidance, feelings of His presence, power from the Spirit, motivation to persevere, what have you. And thankfully, a lot of the times, because that equation is certainly biblical, it works, where we give the input and God gives blessings on the output. But as I point out in the book, there are times when it doesn't work. And even when we double down on the input, it just becomes more frustrating. And I, about 20 years ago, found incredible liberty and freedom through the Book of Esther. Because, and we can talk about this, but the Book of Esther is a book that addresses when that input-output equation does not work, and it offers us what I call a a different pathway up the mountain (laughs) to God that doesn't get rid of the equation, it kind of becomes a grid you can put upon the equation. Yes. Now, here's Esther. People will recall that she married the king of Persia, and he didn't know she was Jewish. And then she learned of this plot from her cousin that there was going to be a plan to exterminate the Jews from Persia. She didn't know what she could do. The story takes off from there. What about that book in particular do you think is a good model for us on this issue of providence in particular? Yeah, that's the first the first way that I outline in the book is, is trusting in God's providence. Look, the, the, the book of Esther stands unique among all 66 books in the Bible in that it's the only book that doesn't mention God. It's the only book in the Old Testament that doesn't mention his law. Prayer is missing as an activity. And then there's key principles missing, like God's grace toward his people. Uh, It frustrated Martin Luther, the great reformer, so much that he wrote, I wish the book of Esther never existed, (laughs) 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 because it it reads like a secular book. But when you look behind the veil, uh, the reason the author wrote the book that way is because Israel did feel very far from God. Given Old Testament structure, in many ways they were far from God because they were in captivity and away from the temple and tabernacle. And so the whole point of the book of Esther is how they had to navigate divine distance in a way that didn't necessarily work the equation, 
but provided other ways up the mountain. And, and you mentioned the first way, trusting in God's providence, which most Bible experts take as the theme of the entire book of Esther. And that's that we don't just trust in God, but we trust in a certain aspect of God. And that is that when he feels really far from us, or we feel far from him, we can still bank on his providence, that he is there, he is in control, that he's got this, and he hasn't left his people and he hasn't left you. Right. That's hard to do, though, if you're in a really tight spot. <laughs> As we, easier said than done sometimes, and I can only imagine how difficult it was for Esther being in her position. What do you take from the text on how she dealt with providence? Yeah, it, it, the theme verse in Esther that just about every you know, writer would, would point out is chapter 4, verse 4, where Mordecai, uh, Esther's cousin, says to her when she's waffling on whether she can go to her husband, the king, to try to save the nation, he, she says, I don't know if I can do it because there's these rules and regulations that could cost me my life if I go to him in the wrong way. And he says, well, if you keep silent, Esther, deliverance will come to our people. Uh, God will find a, another way uh, is the kind of what Mordecai is saying. And then he says, you know, maybe you have come to this point in your life for such a time as this. Yes. It's just strewn with this idea of providence. There were times my wife and I were clinging to nothing but God's providence, that his hand was upon us and he's in control. Right. And it really did, does bring comfort and hope and strength when we need it the most. Very good. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Pastor Jamie Rasmussen. When God Feels Far Away is the book. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Maybe I can just have my baby. It don't matter what nobody says. This is the end of the story of a young mom who planned to end her pregnancy but chose life after visiting a preborn center. Preborn steps into the lives of hurting young women who are being told that a preborn baby is not a life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct answer to Planned Parenthood, helping young moms choose life. I feel like it was meant for me to have this baby. This is something God gave me for a reason. You can be a part of choosing life with young hurting women across the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of 2019. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now, through a match, your gift of $140 will actually help save 10 babies instead of five. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMafford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Authorities in China are making life difficult for Christians. It's against the law to share Christ with children under age 18. We cannot preach to children under 18. That is their practice and law. But when the parents bring kids to the church, when you can teach them English, and then you can send the gift of gospel to them, it is a great joy. Believers are teaching English to young people using a Bible League program that uses God's Word 
is the source of the reading assignments, and many are coming to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and sharing Him with their families. Please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers in China and around the world for only $5 per Bible. $50 sends $10, $500 sends $100. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you for your support. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Glad you're with us and glad to have with us Jamie Rasmussen, Senior Pastor of Scottsdale Bible Church and author of When God Feels Far Away, Eight Ways to Navigate Divine Distance. This is a common Christian thing, I believe, Jamie. We've been discussing it in a little bit more detail, but you're looking at the book of Esther as a really good book to study, to you know, kind of examine this issue of divine distance. Trusting in God's providence is so important. You also talk about the way of choosing humility over pride. How does that apply to the issue of divine distance? Here's our vulnerability, Janet, when we are in times when we feel God is far from us, and that's that we are tempted to say in our flesh, you know, if God's going to be far from me, I think I'll return the favor. Mm-hmm. And and we cop an attitude, at least I do, and I say, well, I'm just going to gut it out alone. I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, I'm going to sort of exist in the flesh. And the Bible calls that pride, whenever mm-hmm. we elevate ourselves above God. And so one of the recipes, if you will, of the book of Esther, and we see it right from the opening chapters, is that both Esther and Mordecai adopted a posture of humility before God, even in their really difficult circumstances. And it's contrasted in the very first or second chapter there with the king, Esther's husband, Ahasuerus or Xerxes, and he's nothing but prideful. And so you have this contrast between humble Esther and then prideful, uh, the prideful king, and it screams to us that one of the ways that Esther is going to navigate divine distance is by remaining humble. <laughs> and that's so eminently biblical. You know, we all are familiar with James 4, 6, where it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Yes. It's one of the few verses in which it literally says, if you do this, God will give you grace. Yeah. And, and so humility is a very powerful and potent posture or attitude that we can have toward God that stands the best chance that when the equation is not working, we can adopt a humble posture, and and it really works in drawing us closer to Him. Well, now this also touches on an important point, Jamie, because if God feels far away, could it be that He is far away in a sense because you are in a sinful place in your life, that you have the wrong posture before Him, and you're not humbling yourself before him. I mean, that's the other side of the equation. We sometimes will talk about the fact that God feels far away and here I am, this good Christian, and I'm really trying to reach out to him and he's ignoring me, which is you know terrible to even think that way. But w- what about that flip side of, well, is there something that you are in- involved in in terms of sin that is keeping you from having you know good fellowship with the Lord? How do you address that question? Well, I think you're exactly right, and and it, it it's almost communicating the solution by identifying the problem, meaning that you're right, many times we're far from God, it's because we have sinned. I, I like how a guy who led me to Christ said it years ago, he said, if God feels far away, 
who moved. Right, right. And, you know, there, there are plenty of times. And so humility becomes the antidote for that. Because when we're humble, we say, I don't have all the answers. I'm not the king of my universe. Uh, I can't take the bull by the horns and get myself out of this. I need outside help. I, I need him. And just by that very posture toward God, that, that very admitting, if you will, uh, we start to draw closer and start to see our sin and are more open to others' input. We don't read our own press releases, and, and we get into a better place with God, and all of a sudden the heavens open up, and as the psalmist says, though there's weeping in the night, there's joy that comes in the morning. Yes, oh, very good reminder. Uh, another thing you focus on is your third way, which is doing right in the right way, and this has to do with what you do and how you act. I think we touched on that just a little bit, but again, going back to Esther, what can we learn from that book that will really help us along the way? Yeah, it, it, it really screams to us in the book of Esther that here you have the, the, the Israelites, over a million of them, living in Persia, exiled to a foreign nation, feeling very far from God. And Mordecai especially adopts this, this posture of obedience before the Lord, doing the right thing in the right way that's outlined in chapter 3 of Esther. And, and it just hit me that could that be one of the ways that we navigate divine distance? Again, when we feel far from God, we're more prone or vulnerable to sin, to making terrible decisions and doing wrong things. At least that's been my experience. And so never does obedience become more important than when we feel like we're in the valley with God and not on the mountaintop. And Mordecai shows that because he obeys God according to one of the Ten Commandments of not bowing to Haman, the arch enemy there. And it has terrible consequences for the nation Israel. But he stays strong in that. He stays strong in his obedience. And what I adopt from that is that when God feels far away, obedience matters, yep. and that it protects us from feeling even further away from him and actually helps us to draw close to him. Yeah, and what strikes me about what you just said is the fact that it, regardless of our feelings, which come and go, and, and somebody made the line once, maybe it was the pizza you ate last night, you're just not feeling well, don't blame it on God all yeah. the time. You know, we always have his word, always. And you may yep. read a particular verse on a particular day and it hits you like an anvil dropping on your head and you're just moved to tears. And other days you can read the same verse and it's just a verse. But it doesn't matter because even if you don't feel close to God and don't feel his presence the way you would want to, you always have his word. So in practical terms, how do you advise a Christian who feels God is far away to obey, like you said, and also to engage with the Word of God and not close it because you don't feel that God is there? Well, you ask how I would advise a Christian. You know, one of the things I've taught our congregation here, I've been here about 15 years, I, I say to them regularly that obedience is a choice. You know, many times we, we feel like victims, you know, to, to things in culture or to the flesh or what have you. And, you know, God says, I've deposit, deposited my Holy Spirit inside of each person who believes in him. And that that Holy Spirit is the seat of power. And as one of my mentors taught me years ago, Larry Crabb, who recently passed away and is in glory with the Lord right now, he once said the Holy Spirit has to be the deepest part of who you are, even if you've covered up the Spirit with lots of sin and poor attitudes or what have you, the Spirit is still deposited in you. And you do have the power, you do have the gumption inside of you through the Spirit 
to obey God and to choose him and to choose what is right. So for me, Janet, I don't allow victim status. I used to as a Christian, not anymore. I don't allow victim status to invade my soul. And I remind myself that even when I feel against the ropes and I feel beat up as a Christian and not very close to God, I can still choose to follow him, at least behaviorally, in the areas that matter. Yeah, and that's a normal part of the Christian life. One of the things that frustrates me, and it might frustrate you too, is the fact that sometimes I think young Christians or, you know, students starting out as young Christians are sold a bill of goods a little bit, maybe not intentionally all the time, but that the if you just give your life to Jesus, you'll have eternal life and you'll have abundant life and whoopee, it's going to be a wonderful ride from here. And the fact of the matter, that's not what the Bible says. We, we also are engaged in the fellowship of his sufferings. We see the trials that that attend a lot of Christians who we read about in the book of Acts, for example. Have we in some way set up people to look to their feelings as the, the what is the standard for whether or not God is close simply by the way we tell them what to expect as a Christian and not teaching them, listen, there are going to be seasons of ups and downs, which is the truth. Oh, I... I, I don't think we have time to get me going on this subject today, <laughs> Janet, because I, you know, I, I'm 57, going on 58. I've been a Christian for 40 years, and, and, and I've had a lot of ups and downs in my walk with God. And if there's one thing I've learned, and it's so hard for Christians to hear this today, especially in America, I'm absolutely convinced that God is not as committed to our comfort as we are. Yeah. I, I, I just, I really believe that. We're, we're so blessed in this nation to have a comfortable life if we choose to. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you go to many other parts of the world, they don't have that choice. Paul the Apostle never had that choice. Jesus didn't have that choice in so many ways. And so does that mean God wasn't committed to them or isn't committed to them? Of course not. It's just that God says comfort is a blessing. Nice feelings are a blessing, but they're not the be-all and end-all of our Christian experience. Not at all. They can become idols. And a quick story, when I uh, first got saved years ago, uh, I got involved with a group called Campus Crusade in college, now called Crew. And back then, they had a little uh, track they put out, and in it, they had this train. And in the train, you might remember, the engine was fact, and then there was faith, and then the caboose was feelings. <laughs> and they taught us very early on that our faith is built on fact that, that then has to be responded to with faith, and the feelings that might or might not come are the caboose. And they, the problem is, they said many young people, us at that time, were trying to lead the train by the caboose, yep. by our feelings. And that was helpful for me as a young man to remind myself that, that my trust in Jesus is built on the fact that he existed and exists now, that he died for me, and that he wants my trust in him. Amen. That's I, And I think that really ails a lot of Americans in general, especially maybe more than people in other countries, saying that, you know, my emotional happiness is what is important. Well, God cares about our holiness a whole lot more than our daily happiness, I think. I And I agree with you completely. I think that's a great point. So going into a season where you might be feeling God as far away, Jamie, what do you say to that Christian by way of encouragement to keep going, to keep obeying, but to trust in the Lord, regardless of what your feelings might be right now? Well, it's, it's a simple logic. It's to, it's to go into it saying that obedience matters, my holiness matters, my righteousness matters, and that I have two choices. I can either respond to feelings of distance by saying, I'm just going to go my own way and do my own thing. 
And we all know that will just complicate things and make it worse, or to make a choice to say that on the areas that matter, I mean, let's be frank, faithfulness to one's spouse, honesty at work, you know, maintaining a quiet time with the Lord, uh, continuing to fellowship with other believers, all the things that we know that God wants from us, we might not feel like doing them. But if we think about it logically, the absence of doing them, not doing them, are, are quite frankly only going to complicate things. We you're make right. a bad situation worse. Jamie, you're right. Thank you so much. When God feels far away, Jamie Rasmussen, thanks a lot, Jamie, for being here. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, what shall we call this new variant of COVID-19? You knew this was coming. You knew this was coming. Is it the new variant? Is it the she variant? No, it can't be the she variant. That would just be too close to home. You don't want to associate this thing with China. My goodness, we can't associate COVID-19 with China because that might remind you of who actually funded the research into coronavirus creation there in that. Oops, we're not supposed to talk about that either. Oh, let's just call it the Omicron variant. Omicron variant. Just skip over she. We don't want to talk about she. It might remind people of China and Wuhan. They really think we're stupid, don't they? Yeah, they really do think we're stupid. And here comes Fauci again, the chief medical advisor, chief virus advisor to the president. They always have these new titles and nobody's supposed to talk about the scandal of him lying to Congress about the funding of the kind of research that took place at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They're too busy worshiping at the feet of Fauci. Let's just call it the midterm variant. I think that's a much better name for this thing, don't you? There were people online talking about this. It's not original to me, but I think it's perfect. It's the midterm variant. If you whip people up into a frenzy about a new variant of COVID-19, it's so scary. It's so scary. This one is really going to wipe out the population. Then you can keep people in a frenzy and then they'll go back and make sure that they reward the Democrat Party because who else can protect us? Wasn't it Joe Biden, by the way, who said he was going to vanquish COVID and COVID would be eradicated under him and we're going to throw everything we have. We have a 200-page plan against COVID. Give me a break. Give me a break. If this were Trump and you had variant after variant, all they would be talking about is the fact that his vaccine rollout was a disaster. Don't you think they would be taking the statistics differently if it had been Donald Trump under whose presidency we were seeing all of these vaccinated people transmitting the virus and contracting the virus? You can talk all day about whether or not the the COVID-19 vaccine makes COVID-19 less virile. You know, it, it is, you know, lessens the symptoms or lessens the duration of your hospitalization if you're in there. Fine, you can talk about that. All I'm saying is the politics of the thing are outrageous because, you know, Trump would be skewered. He'd be raked over the coals if these kinds of things were occurring under his vaccine operation warp speed. So let's go to this story, shall we? This is via Fox. The South African doctor who first alerted authorities to the presence of the COVID-19 Omicron variant reported that it presents unusual but mild symptoms. 
Got that? Dr. Angelique Coetzee, a board member of the South African Medical Association, first noticed otherwise healthy patients demonstrating unusual symptoms on November 18th and said their symptoms were so different and so mild from those I had treated before. Oh, but let's panic. Let's have a worldwide panic. Coetzee explained it presents mild disease with symptoms being sore muscles and tiredness for a day or two not feeling well. Oh, and by the way, most of the patients were men who reported feeling so tired and half of them were unvaccinated. Wait wait a minute. Let's do a little math here. 50% were unvaccinated. That means that 50% of them were vaccinated. Oh, that's interesting. And the symptoms were mild. Unusual, but mild. Something else pointed out by Dr. Robert Malone, the inventor of mRNA vaccines, who has been speaking logically about this whole situation. He points out this announcement of the new COVID-19 variant detected in Botswana. And it says the preliminary report, the preliminary report revealed that all the four cases of this new COVID-19 variant had been fully vaccinated for COVID-19. There you have it. So what do you think Fauci is saying about all this? Look, at this point, do we really even need to verify what Fauci is saying about all this? But here's what he said to Chuck Todd. Cut one. Should we have a vaccine mandate for domestic travel, air travel? You know, Chuck, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make any, any pronouncements about what we should have about vaccine mandates for travel. We know that we evaluate these things literally in real time all the time. You know, everything is discussed and everything is on the table. There you go. Everything's on the table. So if you have not been vaccinated, Fauci says you might have to be vaccinated in order to board an airplane. Yeah, there's no problem there. Of course, can they point to one instance on any airline where there was a COVID-19 outbreak without a vaccine mandate or without vaccines for that matter? I've said this before. I flew continually during the whole course of the pandemic and nobody was getting I and mean, there were no outbreaks. Churches were super spreaders, mind you, but never airplanes, never airplanes. I haven't seen one news story in the entire course of this pandemic over most of the last two years that has ever linked a super spreader event to an airplane. But vaccine mandates are not off the table. Now let's go to what some of the liberal media are having to say about this Omicron variant. This is via Newsbusters. Rachel Scott was filling in as co-anchor of Good Morning America recently. She asked Avery Harper, the deputy political director, about how the new variant could be a wet blanket for Joe Biden. This is cut to. Nearly 150 days ago, the president said we were closer than ever to declaring independence from the virus. Now we see this new COVID variant. How much of a challenge does this pose for the president? Well, we mentioned those travel restrictions earlier. We know that New York's governor has declared a state of emergency. Uh, and uh, we saw the markets take a nosedive on Friday, all because of the Omicron variant. So I would say that this poses a significant challenge to the Biden administration, particularly on the economic front. And we, last week, we heard the president uh, urge American to have confidence in the progress that the economy has made, well, the Omicron variant could pose a significant threat uh, to that progress. And heading into an election year uh, for the Biden administration, which is critical, it could spell trouble. What are you talking about? Where is your evidence that this could be a disaster for Biden? But see how they're viewing it? It's all about whether or not this affects Biden politically. 
when you when you couple this with what Fauci had to say about the fact that vaccine mandates for travelers on airplanes is one of the things that's on the table, you begin to go back to the sense that many of us have had for a long time that the plan is already there. They're just revealing it as they feel they politically can reveal it. They're heading in you know the wrong direction on this. This is the great reset direction, folks. This is globalism. This is technocracy. This is taking over the American economy and making sure that you don't own anything and you'll be happy, as they say over at the World Economic Forum. Klaus Schwab says, so you're going to be happy because so many people under communism were so happy that, you know, that's one thing. If you look at old pictures of communists and, and the people in the streets when the communists were in power, there is nothing more apparent than the fact that those people were gleeful. Really gleeful, standing in those long lines trying to get a loaf of bread. Boy, those were good times. We should return to those times in the United States because that'll make everything equitable. One more cut here. Chuck Todd talking about the effect on Biden here on NBC. This is cut three. Does he take this opportunity to sort of push back at all of the Republicans in particularly in this in various states that have been anti-vaccine mandate, anti-mandates uh, in general, uh, hesitant on the vaccines? Because if we do find out that certainly vaccinated individuals have a, uh, are in a much better shape with this new variant than unvaccinated individuals, does the president use this as an opportunity to basically use the bully pulpit, push back at all of this vaccine misinformation that's out there? Uh, and grab a hold of this because the social spending bill, all of his other political problems, none of them can be solved until COVID is behind us. And, and I think, does this a reminder that he needs to be more front and center on the COVID response than he has been so far? Yeah, crackdown on the unvaccinated because those four cases found in Botswana originally were all in fully vaccinated people and half the cases that the South African doctor who was the originator of reporting this virus to the WHO said that half of these people were unvaccinated. Oh, and half of them were vaccinated. So by all means, crack down on the end. It doesn't work, folks. This isn't a vaccine. We've said it until our faces are blue. It's not a vaccine. It's at best something akin to a therapeutic, like Theraflu, which you give to people when they have the flu that will mitigate the symptoms and shorten the life of the effect of the virus on you. You talk about misinformation. These people major in misinformation. And I'm not somebody who decides ahead of time and then tries to find evidence to back up what I want to be true. I want to read the research and the evidence. And I've been following this since day one. And I'm sorry, but when you start engaging in censorship against doctors and against people who have researched this and epidemiologists and you kick them off social media and you kick them off YouTube, you look suspicious. They don't. We'll be coming back. Stay with us. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of 
the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800 937 9673. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Every day, babies in their mother's wombs are fighting for life, with abortion being the leading cause of death. I already had my mind made up. I was like, I'm going to go through with it. The Ministry of Preborn has pregnancy centers nationwide standing by to help young moms in crisis choose life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound sessions in the country. By letting a mother see her baby in the womb and hear the baby's heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. When I'm sitting there, the lady is giving me my ultrasound. She's like making these weird faces. He's like, it's two. I just start crying. I can't. And sometimes the blessing is doubled. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of the year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now through a match, your gift will be doubled. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Here's another story I need to get to. This actually broke during Thanksgiving week when all of us were eating turkey and taking a few days off and giving thanks to the Lord for our many, many blessings as Americans. James Merritt, you might remember that name. He was once the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and now he is a visiting professor, I guess, over at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also a pastor in Georgia of a Southern Baptist church, very well-known SBC elite. He came out in a social media post uh, just a few days ago promoting a sermon by his son, Jonathan Merritt, who is an out and proud homosexual man. Now, back in the days pre-revoice, I guess a lot of us would have said, how in the world could you have somebody, aside from somebody who is in a metropolitan community church, out and proud and preaching a sermon? It's just, oh man, how in the world could you do this? But now we're to the stage in the Southern Baptist Convention where a former president, this is his son, is promoting the sermon of his son when really what he ought to be doing is saying, son, and maybe behind the scenes, he shouldn't be promoting him, first of all. But second of all, he ought to be talking to him behind the scenes and telling his son to repent. Well, let's look at the list of all of the things the Bible says that will cause you to not inherit the kingdom of God. That's one of them is homosexuality. I didn't say it. God said it. God said it in his word. If you believe the word of God, then you have to go there. So the Conservative Baptist Network put out a statement on this saying promoting homosexual preachers is not loving, biblical, or Baptist. They point out scripture is clear that homosexuality is a grave sin and that sin separates mankind from God. To present to Southern Baptists a man living in unrepentant sin as someone to whom they should listen for a sermon that is, quote unquote, faithful to the gospel, as the elder Merritt tweeted, is wholly illogical and demonstrably dangerous. I agree with them 100%. But there are more problems with this sermon than just the activities of the deliverer of the sermon. You could also argue this was a bit of a nepotistic move on the part of James Merritt to, you know, there's some great sermons out. Oh, look, it's my son. All right. Well, let's listen to some of what he actually said in this sermon on Mark 13. This is very interesting. See if you can, you know, if you have a little pad of paper and a pen, see if you can pick out all of the disturbing parts of this particular clip. This is Jonathan Merritt, cut four. So there he stands. 
awestruck, this unnamed disciple. And he taps his rabbi on the shoulder and says, wow, will you look at this place? Isn't it magnificent? And Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Talk about a buzzkill. He just extinguishes the disciples wonder right there where he stood. But buzzkill or not, Jesus is reminding them and us of a God-honest truth that we need to hear whether we like it or not. Nothing lasts forever. Everything constructed by human hands is temporary. The houses in which we live, the offices in which we work, even the sacred places in which we worship, they're all fleeting, no matter how much you love them. And if that's not bad enough, well, the structures on the inside, they will all eventually crumble too. The families we build, the careers we construct, the relationships we forge, temporary. Now, if you were a Buddhist, you might call this idea impermanence. But us Christians, well, we just call it a fact of life. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and the stones of life, no matter how majestic or well-placed, will eventually fall. Permanence is an illusion. Permanence can even be a delusion. Ah, I'm listening to this thing saying that is not at all the point of Mark 13 and the destruction of the temple that he predicted in that passage. How much worse can you be? He can't even exegete the passage properly. By the way, when he says that nothing lasts forever and that's the point of the destruction of the temple, that is not the point of the destruction of the temple. Do you know anything about messianic prophecy? Do you know anything at all about the real temple? You know, I will destroy this temple in the third day. Remember that when Jesus talked about that, predicting his resurrection, the end of the sacrificial system of the Jews in the temple being destroyed was not about nothing lasts forever. And by the way, did you note how he quoted from Isaiah 40, verse eight, which says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. He left that part out because he was trying to make the point that nothing lasts forever. Well, I got news for you, Jonathan Merritt. The word of God lasts forever. The souls of men last forever. And that includes the body of Christ lasts forever. So don't say nothing lasts forever. Things of this world are passing away, but God gives us eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore we are eternal and the souls of men are eternal. And that's why we should have urgency about evangelism and missions. It's just horrendous to listen to this. Let's listen to a little more. This is cut five. One way that Christians can follow Jesus's advice to keep watch is to wait for the literal second coming of Jesus when all things will be made right at the end of time. Now, before you dismiss this as silly or superstitious, let me remind you that there's a long history of Christians doing exactly this kind of watching and not just end times junkies. This view has long sustained Christians who've been stuck living on the bottom rungs of the ladder, yearning with froth and fever, for a final end to all of the injustice and oppression that keeps pushing them down, down, down. It was the American slaves, not the masters, who sang, my Lord, what a morning when the stars begin to fall. Yet for many of us living in the 21st century, watching for Jesus to literally return at the end of time is rather easy work. It doesn't demand we do anything differently than those who aren't waiting and watching. So there is another way 
Another way that we Christians can follow Jesus' encouragement here to keep watch in times like these, we can simply open our lives to the truth that just as the world is always ending, Christ is always coming again. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? That doesn't even make any sense. That doesn't make it. What do you mean as the world is always ending, Christ is always coming again? There's going to be a point in time when Christ has come, and then it will be too late for those who have not repented of their sins and placed their faith and trust in his blood to wash away their sins and his resurrection from the dead to justify them before a holy God. And that's why we should be about our Father's business of warning men who are dead in sin and trespasses to give their lives to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Because today is the day of salvation. Sky is horrible as a preacher. It's incredible. And this account on Twitter, which is very good and, and posted a lot of different clips from this sermon, it's called Woke Preacher Clips, and I recommend it to you, says this is the gospel, that the whole gospel that Jonathan Merritt was allegedly preaching in this sermon is the gospel of the Great Reset. This is the opinion of this writer. You see that the social world around you is changing and it seems like it's not for the better, but don't resist it. The powers affecting this change are just getting rid of what's obsolete and you will learn to love their new world. Now, this is somebody's opinion about the sermon, obviously, but that's where he's coming from. I mean, this is a guy who was outed as having had a relationship. I don't want to call it that, but a homosexual encounter with another man. Then he did a little video thing with Ed Stetzer. You might remember this, but let's go back and listen to what Jonathan Merritt had to say back then. This is Cut Six. There was a shift that went on from homosexuality as a curse to homosexuality as a cross. And it's sort of like, this is a part of our fallenness and brokenness, and it's complicated, and maybe you chose it, maybe you're not, and maybe it's some mixture of nature and nurture, and we don't really understand it, and there's a mystery here, but we know that, that we all have crosses that we're supposed to bear, and we're told to take up our crosses, and we all have our own temptations, and this is your cross, so just take it up and follow Jesus. And, and, and an embrace of some of the complexities of the issue, and at the same time, still a call to sort of um, a biblical sexual ethic. And I think now we're entering into a third phase. And I don't know what that phase phase is. I I, I see sort of a range uh, in the, there's the right that I think is more similar to what is sort of that cross phase. There's the middle, and I'll I'll alliterate because I'm Southern Baptist, but sort of the crucible that, that, that this is an experience in which we learn something about who we are as human beings and Christians that if we, for example, if we allow homosexuals to become members of our church, that we learn something about what it means to love or to be marginalized, all the way to the left that you might, you might find with like um, a liberal Episcopalian. Uh, that would be that homosexuality is a crown, that it's a, it's a gift, and that these, should be, these people should be given special treatment in the church. I don't know how it's going to shake out, but my sense is, is, that, is that this dish of cookies has been put back in the oven, and at some time, and it could be three years, five years, ten years, we're all going to hear that ding, and it's going to come out. And at that moment, we're going to be, in, I think, in a new phase of, of uh, evangelical thinking on the issue. Well, we're in a new phase, aren't we? We're in the post-revoice phase, and it sounds like Jonathan Merritt is fitting right in, having left evangelicalism in 2019 and come out of the closet in 2021, August, just a few months ago. And now you have an SBC elite, his father, James Merritt, promoting his horrible sermons. Horrible sermon. The irony, James Merritt's latest book, you're not going to believe this, it's called Character Still Counts. It is time to restore our lasting values. Oh, well, that's for sure. But they've got to be based on the word of God, not on nepotism and not on softness towards sin. If we care and love people, 
then we have to be truthful about sin or grace doesn't mean a thing. We got to leave it there. We'll see you next time on Janet Meffer Today.